Shalom and welcome to another in our series of podcasts from Temple Beth Am, a dynamic center for conservative Judaism in Los Angeles. This is a recording from our 2021 Elul Learning Series. To get us into the mode of the Amin uh, Jewish law, Jewish tradition says that you're supposed to start investigating what a holiday is about 30 days before the holiday. Um, so when they're right in next to each other, like Purim and Pesach, as soon as Purim is over, you're supposed to start learning the laws of Pesach. And the idea is similar to the textual idea that a Jew is um, ideally not supposed to come to shul, listen to the Torah reading and say, hey, this is a really interesting parsha." but supposed to, according to the tradition, do Shnai Mikra Bechad Targum, two readings of the Parsha through from the very beginning, and one in translation or commentary before you get to Shul. So when you get to Shul, you get to experience it without having to re-enter it a priori the first time. Similarly with holidays, right? We should, by the time Rosh Hashanah comes, it shouldn't be a shock. It should be uh, the, the organic arrival of something we've been thinking about for quite some time. Now, in the professional sense, right, rabbis and cantors and lay people who work on the holidays are doing that. But you know, we say all the time that we're not super Jews. We don't have any obligations to the Jewish, to the, to the world of Jewish thought or, or, or living that you do not, right? Um, we have some professional obligations to prepare the community for the holiday. But in terms of getting ready for Shoshanah, that's every Jew's responsibility. And again, kudos to... Rabbi Shas for the second year in a row, putting out this wonderful Elul program, which through many different angles will expose you to ideas and principles and concepts that should get us ready for Yami Nuri. And I decided that I would dedicate my four sessions to Maimonides, the Rambam's treatise on Shuba, on repentance, called Elchot Shuba, the laws of Shuba. Uh, I'll give a little bit of background information. Uh, some of this will be redundant for some of you, but I think it's helpful for everyone because I know there are different different um, uh, backgrounds from all the people who are uh, here today. Um, so the Rambam Maimonides, uh, the great Spanish and then Moroccan and then Egyptian and then land of Israel sage, 1134 to 1204, uh, born in Cordoba, Spain, lived many of his, much of his life in Fez, uh, perhaps one of the most uh, prolific and significant Jewish thinkers of all time. Uh, he's dead almost a thousand years, and his works are studied every single day. Uh, so, so are Rashi's, but Rashi was mostly a commentator. Uh, Rambam created new worlds in terms of how to think uh, and organize ideas as a Jew. Um, and he wrote several different uh, important works. He wrote tons of works, but several different important works that are worth mentioning as we think about this topic of tshuva. Uh, his major uvers, major opuses, are an analytical commentary on the Mishnah, the Mishnah, the first uh, really four, uh, full rabbinic uh, document written and codified in the beginning of the third century CE. He wrote this commentary on the Mishnah, which is through the prism of the Talmud, meaning the Talmud is a commentary on the Mishnah itself, or an expansion of it. And Maimonides, the Rambam, wrote his commentary to the Mishnah through the prism of the Talmud, which means he already knew that by heart, I think at the age of 21 or 22. Uh, his, that's his major analytical piece of work. His major philosophical piece of work is Moreh Nebuchim, literally sometimes translated as the guide to the perplexed. Moreh, you know, an instructor, someone who's navoch, is someone who's confused. And that's his theology, philosophy, how to think of the basic, um, the basic way of being a Jew, uh, and probably the hardest text of his to study, and maybe the most important. 
So that, that's his analytical uvra and his philosophical uvra. His great halachic Jewish legal uvra is the Mishneh Torah. I want to focus a little bit on, on what it is in general, because within it is Hilchot Shuvah, but it's significant to understand the larger work within which the laws of Shuvah find itself. So Mishneh Torah, I'll translate it in a second. It's written between the years of 1170 and 1180. So Rambam starts writing it when he's about 35 years old, and he's done it around 45 years old. It makes me feel very insignificant in terms of the articles I published here and there. Uh, have not yet come to a Mishneh Torah. Uh, the Rambam was not known to be a humble man. Um, his, a lot of his writings bespeak a certain elitism in terms of the way he understands Jewish life and thinking and a certain separation between him and the people for whom he's writing. And even the titles of his work evince a certain lack of modesty to which he was probably entitled given what he knew. Uh, what is Mishneh Torah? I mean, you know what Torah means. Torah means two things, by the way, like capital T and lowercase t. Torah is the Torah. Torah is also teaching or instruction. Mishneh is a wonderful pluripotent word because it, it plays on Mishnah, which is teaching, l'shanot, v'shinantam levanecha, and it plays on Shnayim too, a doubling. A Mishneh is a second. So by calling his book the Sek Mishneh Torah, in some ways, he's saying that his book is the teaching of the Torah, right? The reteaching of the Torah. And in some ways, he's saying it's the second coming of the Torah, almost like the New Testament. Mishneh Torah means Torah 2.0, right? So it's a really interesting thing for him to name as his book. Um, what's, what's significant about this, many things that are significant, it's the first halachic code, first code of Jewish law that's mostly organized by topic, not by Talmud, right? If you've studied a little bit of Talmud, you know that it, it, it's organized generally into tractates. But if you open up tractate Shabbat, Right, which is supposed to be talking about the laws of Shabbat, you can be in page after page after page of material that has nothing to do with Shabbat as the rabbis go off on a tangent. Plus, there are many a- aspects of Jewish law that don't have a tractate named after them. Right, So there's no Masechet Tzedakah. There's no tractate of, of Talmud that deals with Tzedakah. But there are laws of Tzedakah embedded in many of the tractates. And so what scholars did before the Rambam is that they wanted to find out what the rabbis of the Talmud thought about a certain idea, they had to scour the entire Talmud to find the material. Like maybe it's on, you know, Masechet Menachot, page 53a. Now that's all that they did. So they knew it pretty well, but you, you, you had no indexed code. The Rambam said with a certain amount of appropriate elitism, I can do that on the Rambam. But Joe Schmo in, in the third row of the, of the shul who studies here and there, he can't go through all of rabbinic literature to find out what to do uh, when his father dies right? Or how much tzedakah he should give in a particular situation, and there's no Google. So it's an incredible thing that the Rambam conceived of. He recognized the need, and then he did it. So he calls through all of rabbinic material has to do with Jewish law, and he writes a code that's organized by topic. So you no no longer have to go searching for it. Uh, Or if you go searching for it, you can search for it much more easily. It's the um, the concept is the basis on which the later Shulchan Aruch, the Code of Jewish Law by Rabbi um, Yosef Karo in the 16th century spot, bases his idea. He organizes it differently, right? He, the, the, the material is organized into different um, columns, but the notion of organizing Jewish law into a manual that can be uh, found rather easily is really invented by Maimonides, by the Rambam. Um, uh, in contradistinction to many of the other codes that were written in the Middle Evil Era, including the Shulchan Aruch, the Mishneh Torah um, is, uh, includes 
even material that was obsolete in the aftermath of the destruction of the temple. For instance, if you open up the Shulchan Aruch, or Yosef Karo, uh, on, on every kind of observant Jewish shelf in the last 500 years, and you want to find out how the sacrifices were done in the temple on Yom Kippur, you won't find it. Rabbi Yosef Karo wrote a very practical book about Jewish law that was that obtained in a post-temple era. The Rambam, even though he had some very interesting theories about the origins of the sacrificial system and the need for it to yield to a life of prayer. So he was, in, in Morena Buchim, he writes a lot about um, the fact that they were never considered to be the, the, the end of Jewish worship, but rather the means to an end. He still includes all of that now obsolete material in his Mishneh Torah. So a good portion of this work is no longer relevant to the Jew except for theoretical study rather than for practical use. And the original use and rationale for his book was for practical use. Um, we, we, we jumped on it before, but I'll go a little bit deeper into the names. So as I said, that Mishneh Torah is an interesting name for his book. It's also not the only name for the book. But just to stay with the Mishneh Torah for a second, not only does it play with the notion of it being the second coming of Torah, it's also a pun uh, or, or a, an allusion to the rabbinic nickname for the book of Deuteronomy. I gave a drash about this a few weeks ago, uh, Shabbat morning, when we started the book of Dvarim. The rabbi's nickname for the book of Dvarim, the fifth book of the Torah, is, in some places, Mishneh Torah, Torah times two, Torah 2.0. Why? Because, as Professor Michal Gubin points out, Dvarim is both the fifth book of the Torah and the first commentary, as it were, on the Torah. It's the first book that looks back on the Torah and seems to do a, a, a proto-early version of commentary on the text itself. So Deuteronomy, by the way, that's what Deuteronomy means, Deutero 2, nomos law, the second law, right? So the Greek Deuteronomy is, there's a, there's a etymological relationship between the rabbi's nickname for Devarim as Mishneh Torah and the inherited Greek word Deuteronomy. Maimonides knowingly calls his own book that. So it's like, you thought Dvarim was Torah 2.0? <laughs> now we really come to two, Torah 2.0 because I've distilled all the things that you need to know that have, has emerged from rabbinic literature into the Torah. It's all here, right? And it's, 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 a, it's a massive undertaking. But the outcome is, obviously the printing press doesn't exist anymore, but, uh, or yet, excuse me. Um, but if you have this book on your shelf and you want to be an observant Jew, the answer is there. By the way, to this day, if I have a question about something relatively, well, bo- both simple or complicated, I can go to the CJLS, the Conservative, uh, the Committee on Jewish Law and Standards for the Conservative Movement, to find a 21st century answer on how to handle a certain um, halakhic thing. But if I just kind of forgot, I don't know, I-, I forgot how to count the days of Shloshim when they're interrupted by not one yantif but by two, I-, I just go to the Mishneh Torah and I find it in four minutes, right? And it's right there. It's very easily found. So he did a, a massive, uh, a massively important thing to the Jewish community. By the way, it's also a subtle play, this um, name, on the Mishnah itself, right? So just to define terms, the Mishnah, the first rabbinic text, right, on which Maimonides wrote a commentary when he was 21, by calling his book Mishneh Torah, it's a play not only on the book of Deuteronomy, it's a play on the Mishnah, which means he is thinking of his work in the category of the two most significant um, first responses to the Torah, which is the book of Deuteronomy, and then uh, the rabbinic collection of laws and, and, and lore in the Mishnah. Also, because he was such an incredible uh, rabbi and sage, he wanted, let me see if I can, I can explain this well. 
you know how English has ch- English is changing every day, right? So that if you if you watch a TV show from the seventies, not just the vocabulary, but just the way people speak is different than now, right? And certainly, if you try to read Chaucer or Shakespeare, right? Certainly, when it comes to Hebrew, particularly since Hebrew's been around much longer than English, um, Hebrew scholars laud the Mishnah for being written in particularly lucid, clear, simple Hebrew. There's a lot of vocabulary that. You know, if you don't know the name for this particular wax or oil used in lighting candles, you're going to have to learn it. But the syntax of how the sentences are put together in, in Mishnah Hebrew are very simple, right? Um, it, it's a great way to start learning rabbinic Hebrew because if you know just a little bit about how the sentences are put together, it's, it's an organic guide. By the time Maimonides comes around, almost a thousand years later, Hebrew is very different. Medieval Hebrew is very different. Rashi's Hebrew is very different. Rashi's Hebrew is much more like the Hebrew Aramaic of the rabbis of the Talmud in 3rd, 4th, 5th, 6th centuries um, CE in Babylonia. That's Rashi's Hebrew. That's what, was in, that's what arrived into France um, in the 11th, 12th century. And certainly where Maimonides was growing up in Spain and Morocco, it's a very different Hebrew than the Mishnaic Hebrew, but he chose because he could, because he was this good to say, I'm not only going to name my book um, in a way that is evocative of the Mishnah, I'm going to write my book in Hebrew that is evocative of the Mishnah. And so if you know enough about Hebrew, when you read through Mishneh Torah, you say, oh, this is Mishnaic Hebrew. And it's a, a phenomenal thing he was able to accomplish. The other main name for the book, aside from the Mishneh Torah, is Yad HaChazakah, which has several different um, uh, things that we can say about it. First of all, the two words, Yad HaChazakah, the strong hand, is a reference, once again, in a lack of humility, to God's mighty hand by which the Israelites were saved from Egypt. So the Rambam says, here I am, Maimonides, extending my Yad HaChazakah to you Jews to help you emerge from the, I don't know, the darkness of exile and to bring you clarity into your, into your, into your life. And, and he did so. But because he's so clever, in Gematria, Yad Yud Dalid is the number 14. And the Mishneh Torah is divided into 14 books, into which we have, and from which are 80 sections. But there are four different books in the book. So Yad HaChazakah is also a play on that. Okay. Um, that's the intro to Mishneh Torah. It's, it, it's, it's, it's sort of weird to give a, a class on one of the sections of Mishneh Torah with giving you know, a 10 to 15 minute intro. Chuba, right? repentance. It's a word that we think a lot about for 10 days of the year. How much do we think about it in November, February? Um, and is that a problem? The word itself, we translate it into English as repentance. Um, repent, I suppose the best way of translating it into other English is to, is to express remorse for something that one did um, and then ask forgiveness and then not do it again. Teshuva, for those of you who know the Hebrew, is, is, a, is a slightly different feel to it because it, it's, it's dealing with the root. It's built on the root shuv to return, and return is different than repent. So when we say that we're doing tshuva, we're returning to what? Returning to whom? Are we returning to the time before we sinned? Are we returning to the type of person who wouldn't have sinned? Were we ever that person? Are we returning to the Garden of Eden before there was sin? So even the word itself is evocative, and the Rambam plays with that a little bit, including in the first law of Hilchot Shuvah, which we'll get to in a little bit. Um, Mishneh Torah, as I said before, is a halachic work. It's 99.99% Jewish law. But the first book, the first of the 14 books, 
is more, I would call, semi-halachic than actual halachic. I mean, the first book is not talking about kashrut or shabbat or chagim or tzedakah or uh, mourning. His first book is called Sefer Hamada, the book of knowledge, the book of, of knowing things. And even though it's in his, not in his philosophical work, more in Abuchim, but in his halachic work, uh, it deals more with the basis of Jewish thought and engagement with ideas more than specific to-do lists. You don't generally open Sefer Hamadah to answer a halachic question. You open, open Sefer Hamadah to understand how the Rambam understood the whole realm of Jewish life from which his philosophy of Jewish law emerges. Sefer Hamadah has five subsections. Remember I told you there were 14 books? Sefer Hamadah is the first one. And there are 80 subsections of those books. Sefer Hamadah has five. The first one is called Yisodei HaTorah, the fundamentals, Yisodei's fundamental, um, or the, the, the underpinning of the Torah. This is where the Rambam lays out in clearer language and with much less kind of scaffolding than he does in Morena Buchim, the, the notion of the belief in God. He tries to prove the existence of God in a, through an Aristotelian model um, as the God, as the first mover, right? You can go back to who, who, uh, who, star- who, who started this act, but who started that act, but who started that act. At some point, you have to have a prime mover that is God. Um, and there are, there are places where what he writes in, in Yisudeh HaTorah uh, are evocative of what he writes at greater length in Moreni Bukhim. The second of the five books of Hilchot, of, of Sefer Hamadah, is um, Hilchot Deot. It doesn't work as well in, uh, in English. The the, the laws of knowledges, de'a is knowledge, something that knows, the laws of knowledges. This talks about general human behavior, and it starts with a really interesting discourse, which we're not going to go into, on how many different types of human characters there, that, um, character traits there are. Right? So we think of him as a medieval halachist. He was also a proto-psychologist, and, and, and so, much, so much of what he wrote, writes in this section is very, very resonant in terms of how we understand the multiplicity of human uh, characteristics there are. The third book moves from theoretical to, I would call it semi-halachic, and that's Hilchot Talmud Torah, the laws of the learning of the Torah. The reason why I call it semi-halachic is even those people who are very, very committed to studying Torah don't consult this book for how-to. They might be inspired by this book for, for, for how committed you should be to, to, to the study of Torah, and, and the Rambam writes in halachic language, but basically he lays out in in, in, in language that's evocative of an obligatory system, all of the ways in which you should be committed to the study of Torah, which you're all doing right now. The fourth book of Sefer Hamadah is getting even more halachic. It's called Hilchot Abodah the laws of idolatry, not how to, but how not to, right? Um, but what differentiates it from most of the other parts of Mishneh Torah, most areas of Jewish law have things that you must do and things that you can't do. Right. Think of Shabbat. Right. You know, the laws of how to say Kiddush and the laws of how not to not not to violate the prohibition against working. Hilchot Avodah Zarah is different because it's all about what you have to avoid. There's, there's almost no positive commandment for uh, Hilchot Avodah Zarah unless you want to go back to the verses that talk about our obligation to rid the in the land of Israel from idolatry. But mostly it's the way that you avoid attaching your behavior to um, idolatry and to foreign worship. Um, there's no active, active exhortation or to-do list in this book. 
um, because as I said, the, this area is, is a set of lota says of thou shalt nots that for the most part does not come along, come along with ta'as says things that you must. And then you get to Hilchot Shuvah. And there's a, a reason why I'm laying this out this way. Hilchot Shuvah, the laws of Shuvah, which we're going to be studying, is the last of the five sections of the first book of this halachic work, except none of those five sections are really all that halachic, including Hilchot Tshuva, right? What do I mean by including that? To my chagrin and maybe to Maimonides' chagrin. We don't often think about our obligations specifically in how to do repentance. We might think generally about it, that in order to be a better person, we have to repent. But people who you know, send me emails about what, what to do um, when their milchit fork lands in their fleshic uh, pot that they're cooking in, rarely will send me an email asking me the halachic, not like the general rabbinic guidance, but the halachic obligations upon them when they have erred. So to put hilchot shuva, first of all, to call it hilchot, the laws of shuva, and to put it in the beginning of his treatise and his opus on law is saying something very significant about what the Maimonides thinks our obligations towards repentance uh, is. Um, the Rambam was known for order, right? Um, nothing happens accidentally in how uh, he sets things up. He's very mathematical, very scientific. So if he's putting not only um, in Sefer Hamada, but at the very end of Sefer Hamada, there has to be a reason. Some scholars wonder, why doesn't Hilchot Shua, the laws of Shua, which we do associate with the Yemim Noraim, appear elsewhere in the book? In fact, there is um, uh, one of the books of, of, uh, of the Mishnah Torah is Sefer Zmanim, the, the laws of, um, of times, uh, holidays, right? So you would think that maybe Hilchot Shua should be a subsection of the laws of Yom Tov and the laws of Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur. Why not there? Now we'll go to our first text. So I'm going to put a um, uh, put a oops, I'm going to put a link in the chat so you all can open the Google Doc. If, if anyone is having a hard time opening it, I can share the screen. It's easier for me not to share the screen if you can just do it on your own. Uh, so one second. So that it's in the it's in the chat. It should be accessible. Raise your hand or unmute yourself and tell me if you cannot open it. And if, if any if one person cannot open it, then I will screen share. But once, twice. Okay, Bonnie can see it, so that's a good sign. All right. So um, we may or may not get to all these texts uh, today. This is the beginning of the text sheet, and we'll obviously be adding to it as the session goes on. By the way, I'm, I'm expecting these classes on Friday mornings to last between 25 and 40 minutes, depending on the material I have prepared for that day and, and what else is going on on that Arab Shabbat. We'll try to go till about 9, 10 today. Um, okay, so why doesn't Maimonides put the laws of Tshuva into the part of his book that deals with Yamim Nori'im Kaihalat? We get a little bit of a, I call a, of a, of a, a window in it that we can, I know I'm not screen sharing yet because I'm um, Rabbi Shatz because I, I think everyone has opened it up. Do people want me to screen? Sh- oh, I guess I should for people yeah. watching on Facebook. Yeah. Aha, you are smarter than I am. Okay, hold on one second. I don't know about that. Um, I have so many things open on my. Okay, now I'm screen sharing. So you can also just watch the screen on Zoom. You don't have to open up the doc, but you have the doc. 
um, we get a window, or at least we can deduce an answer um, for why he didn't put it there, to how he, Maimonides, describes his own Sefer Zmanim, the Book of, uh, of, of Holidays. So in addition to writing all of these books, he also gives an introduction to each. So look at this one line. Um, this is uh, his own overview. He gives his own kind of uh, syllabus uh, and synopsis of the book before he actually gets into it. And when it comes to Sefer Shlishi, the third book, which is Sefer Zmanim, the Book of Times, the Book of Holidays, this is what he writes. What am I going to write about in this book? All of the mitzvot that are obligatory during very specific set times. When do you have to observe the laws of Purim? On Purim. When do you have to observe the laws of Hanukkah? On Hanukkah. Kigon Shabbat, like Shabbat, Umoadot, and holidays. The Karati Shem Sefer Zeh, Sefer Zmanim. And I called this book the Book of Zmanim. So deduce with me. If Maimonides does not put Hilchot Shuva in this book, which would make sense given its connection to Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur, what might he be saying about the category or the topic of tshuva? Yes, Denise. Denise, you you muted, you unmuted, but then you, there you are. Yes. It seems like something that could come up throughout the year between people at least. Yeah, and, and I could add could to will, right? He's basically yeah. shouting to all of us, you, you dolts, you have been deluded into thinking that you are supposed to about be thinking about repentance 10 days a year. It's true you're supposed to be thinking about Pesach eight days a year, and you're supposed to be thinking about Hanukkah eight days a year. You're supposed to be thinking about Chuba every day. It's a, it, it, it's a uh, repudiation of the notion common then and common now that this is a seasonal obligation. People who daven regularly, at least on a choreographic level, understand this. I'm going to just move my camera a second. When we, we say the daily Amidah, we say, Forgive us, God, for we have sinned. Forgive us, King, for we have transgressed. At least we have muscle memory reminding us that the al that we do in Yom Kippur is not a Yom Kippur thing. It's a daily thing. Right? How much attention do we put to it? Guilty as charged. It's hard to put attention to every single um, thing that we say in prayer. But, but, but scholars believe that the Rambam's not including Hilchot Shuva in Sefer Hazmanim is due to the fact that he doesn't want us to think of it as a seasonal time-specific obligation. Okay. So then that might answer the question as to why not elsewhere. But why in Sefer Mada, why in the Book of Knowledges, why in an introductory book, why in a book that seems to lay out the basics of Jewish belief and belief in God? I mean, if I'm, I'm talking about the basics, right? Belief in one God uh, and, and, and feeling a fealty to the commandments and repentance. Is that one of the major pillars of Judaism? Maybe so. Look what he says about as an introduction to the first book. So I went out of order. I showed you what he says in the introduction to the third book. Now what he says in his introduction to the first book, this is source number two, um, uh, if you're following along. Sefer Rishon, the first book, the book of knowledge, Mada. Echlolbo, what am I going to include in it? Kol ha-mitzvot shehen ikar dat Moshe Rabbeinu. What a wonderful phrase. I'm going to include in it all the mitzvot that are the ikar, the principle, the essence of the dat. Dat is really the Hebrew word for religion. Faith, maybe? That's translated here as faith. The faith of Moses, our teacher. Bitzarich adam otam. A person needs to know them. Tchilat hakol, before everything. Don't learn the laws of Shabbat if you don't know what it means to be a Jew. Now, 
We might say, and I teach conversion class this way, how do you learn how to be a Jew? By learning the laws of Shabbat. But the Rambam says first principles. Don't go into the specifics of how to kosher a pan for Pesach. If you don't know whom you're obedient to and why. So this first book is going to lay out the basic principles of Jewish existence. Like the unification of God's name, Baruch Hu. The Isur Abu Dazara, it's staying away from idolatry. Some people believe that the Torah is basically uh, mostly a text on eradicating idolatry from human reality. The Karati Shem Sefer Zeh Sefer Madat. And I called this book the Book of Madat. So why didn't he put it in Sefer Zmanin? Because maybe it's not a time-bound concept. Why did he put it in Sefer Madat? It's a repudiation of another idea, right? Repudiation of the idea that repentance is like kind of a part of Judaism. What's Judaism really about? Davening and Shabbat and the holidays. No. It's part of the, it's a pillar of the Jewish, of the Jewish institution. So we might ask ourselves, are we overthinking this? Is is, is a cigar just a cigar? And and sometimes you just kind of put something randomly. I don't think so. As I said before, order and organization is is the main organizing um, notion that, of understanding Rambam's work. It's the main order, main notion of this work. This work is extremely ordered. If it's in this slot in Sefer Hamada, it's because, because Rambam wanted it to be, and he wanted to tell us before he wrote a single word about it, that this notion of Shuba, it's central and it's perpetual. And if you think it's occasional and ancillary, you're wrong and you're missing an essential thing about being a Jew. He's really calling all of us out, which means he also felt the need to call all of them out as contemporaries then, and not much has changed, sadly, in, in the overall way in which we think of our Jewish lives. Um, professor Gerald Lidstein, who, who, who is a professor at Ben-Gurion University uh, in uh, Beersheba for many years, he, he uh, did a, a comparison of two books of of, of uh, Mishnah Torah that we're actually not going to be looking at today, Hilchot Tfilah, the laws of Tfilah, and Hilchot Lachim, the laws of kings, okay? the, the laws of kingship and how to rule. Another one of the um, practically obsolete sections of Mishnah Torah that he includes because he includes everything. What does Professor Blitzstein say about this? He says, if you compare those two as archetypes within Mishnah Torah, Hilchot Tfilah, the laws of Tfilah, existed as a category before the Rambam wrote this code. If most of it is in Masechet Brachot in the Talmud, you do see the rabbis systematically going through how to daven and, and what the rules are. The laws of kingship are not. There's a couple of verses here in the Book of Shoftim. There are rabbinic allegories about it here. There's not any section of rabbinic material to say, ah, this is where the rabbis are focusing on the ethos and the obligations of a king. Basically, the Rambam conjured it. He conjured it as a category. He invented it. He invented the notion that there should be a codified, organized way of thinking about how kings rule the Jewish people. Um, one might say the same thing for Hilchot Shuvah. The laws of Shuvah don't exist in the Torah. Maybe even the concept of the Rambam will link in the first halacha that we're going to read in a minute, um, his first rule to the verse of the Torah. And the laws of Shuvah do not exist in any sig- significantly sized chunk in all of rabbinic literature. Again, you have stories here and examples here and laws here and there. But if you, if you interviewed Rabbi Yochanan from the Tav and say, is there such a thing as Hilchot Shuvah? He wouldn't really understand what you were saying. Maimonides conceived of and conjured the category. Why? 
as a manual, perhaps, to help people do the core thing that they must do, but rarely do as Jews. And that is to figure out actually how to repent. Not just know that you must, but how to do it. One more prefatory remark, and then we'll actually look at the first text, which we probably won't get through today. Source number three, uh, Rabbi Moshe Pinchuk, who uh, is a, been a fascinating writer and thinker. He's been in Australia. He's been in the land of Israel, uh, Orthodox Micha, um, also a, a member of Tsohar, which is uh, a word that means light. It's actually the word in the, um, in the, in the Noah's Ark story that is like the aperture through which the light came through. And it's a kind of a progressive Orthodox organization of rabbis in Israel. He writes something um, about the Me'iri, who is, uh, lived a little bit later than Maimonides um, as, a, as a biblical, as a Talmudic commentary, that I think also applies to what Rambam is doing here. Me'iri's fascinating comment in his introduction to Chibur HaTshuva, so, so Rambam wrote Sefer HaTshuva, Hilchot Tshuva, the laws of Tshuva, and Me'iri wrote a book called Chibur HaTshuva, like the, 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 the connecting ideas of Tshuva, drives this point home. He relates a conversation. Meiria is like 13th, 14th century. I might be off a little bit by now, but early Middle Ages. He relates a conversation he had with a Christian sage who told him that in their theological work, they grapple with the question of why Jews do not repent in spite of so many troubles and tragedies that befall them. In other words, Meiria is talking to a Christian friend of his. A Christian friend says, you know, you Jews are suffering. And your own theology is that you're suffering because you've sinned. That's, I didn't make that up. You guys did, right? The book of Jonah. And the whole notion that when you, you know, if, if bad things happen to you, you should scour your own deeds to see how you're responsible for it. So, so the Christian asked me, why don't you guys do things differently if you think the reason why you're suffering is because of your own sins? Um, their only solution to this puzzle, meaning the Christian and the Miri together, is that the Jews do not have proper instruction regarding the performance of Chuba. Therefore, says Miri, I've decided to create a proper Chuba manual for my Jewish brethren. I think the Rambam was doing something similar. Okay, that's 35 minutes. Um, and let me pause here to see if there are any questions. If there are questions, we can linger on that and then study the first text next week. If not, then we can study, start studying, studying the first text now. Yes, Taibo. Um, it's Sorry, it's a minor question. No such that's thing. Okay. Um, well, you'll hear. I've heard... Several scholars, obviously, including you, give introductions to the Rambam, but I've never heard anyone talk about his ego before, the way you did in the beginning. And I was wondering if you might have any comment about whether um, it was because he was such an Aristotelian, so comparing what might be the sense of ego and who even deserves to vote in the Aristotelian notion of democracy. So in other words, doesn't look like that much ego when you look at Aristotle. Anyway, I was wondering if you had a comment. Um, Most of my comment is to raise up your question as an interesting question. I will, with no false humility, I will say, I I don't think I am nearly enough of a scholar on Aristotelianism or that approach to democracy and what the Rambam might have thought of it to know if that's what infuses his potential lack of humility. Let me say also with humility that when we talk about the personal character traits of sages lived 900 years ago, it's not that I'm being um, 
flippant about it, but we're, it's conjecture. It's guessing. I, I have no idea if Maimonides, the human being, was humble or, or, or arrogant. But it, it seems from his writing that he saw himself as an expert beyond any other expertise that could be acquired. He seems comfortable saying that he's writing this for the people, but he doesn't know that he would need to ab- abide by the, by the same obligations. And there, there, there is an elitism that exudes from some of his writing. You know, in person, he might have been a very humble dude. I have no idea. Um, but, but listen, I also think that it's possible to become such a master of something that it's impossible to be truly humble about it. Right? Like, you know, Lahavdil, could LeBron James be humble about his basketball skills? To be honest, uh, like it would be impossible for him to be to to wield his basketball skills humbly. So it may have been impossible for the Rambam to wield his understanding of the world and the tradition. Remember, he was also an astronomer and he was a physician um, and he was a philosopher with, 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 with what we would call 21st century humility, right? And maybe that's not a bad thing, right? Like there, there are also many different ways of thinking of humility. Humility is being modest about that which you know. Humility also has its own um, its own uh, pitfalls where you no longer think of yourself as you ought to, right? You don't give yourself enough of it. So I don't know enough about the Aristotelian approach to know if that's where he's drawing it from, except that I know that he draws a lot on Aristotelian philosophy. Um, okay, let's start the first halakha, um, but we're not going to finish it because uh, it deserves a, um, a slow Okay, so now we're into it. This is Mishneh Torah, the, the, the whole book, Hilchot Shuvah, the Laws of Shuvah, which is the fifth section of Sefer Hamada, and this is how he begins his treatise on Shuvah. Kol mitzvot Shabbat Torah, bein aset, bein lota aset. So all of the mitzvahs, all the obligations of Torah, whether they are in the positive, thou shalt category, or the lota aset, thou shalt not. Imavar adam If a person transgressed any one of them, bein bezadon, bein bishkaga. Zadon means willfully, knowingly, like I know it's wrong and I'm doing it anyway, or bishkaga, or unwilling, or unknowingly. And by the way, unknowingly is two categories, right? There are two ways you can, in general, you can commit a sin unknowingly. I didn't know it was prohibited, and I did it, or I knew it was prohibited, but I didn't think that I was doing the prohibited act, right? So um, I, I didn't know shrimp was, was trafe. I saw like I went out and say, I want to eat, I, I thought shrimp was more like a fish, and so I ate it right? That's one way of doing something unknowingly. Or I knew shrimp was shrimp. I just didn't think this was shrimp. I thought this was, you know, fake Pollock fish, you know, like in a sushi roll. So there, so there's there are several ways of dividing the, the mitzvot, positive and negative, and then ways that you violate them willfully or unwillfully. And within unwillfully, there are two possible ways for that to happen. When a person comes around to do shuba, he writes it kind of um, like dispositively, like, like, you, you, you committed the sin, and you're going to do tshuva for it, obviously. V'yashuv mechatato. This is how he, he builds in the word return as a verb into his first description. The, the, the root return is in the first sentence of what Rambam writes about tshuva. What, why is it tshuva? You will return, turn from, turn away from the sin. What Rambam is saying is here, it's not a return to a, a, an earlier you. It's not a return to a different time. It's a turning from the sin. When you do this tshuva and you decide not to do it again, you must lehit vadot, be dewy, make a confession. 
Vav Dalet Hey or Vav Dalet Yud is a verbal confession. You might know the word from what we're going to do a lot in Yom Kippur. That and the Achi are called the confession. It's when we say out loud, we do it formulaically. You're supposed to be doing it very intentionally. List the things that we have done wrong. In front of God, Baruch Hu, may God's name be blessed. Textual source. Doesn't come out of nowhere. The fifth book of, of Numbers, sixth verse. Ish o isha ki asu When a man or a woman does um, uh, commits a sin, and then there's a second half of the verse, and then the next verse, vihid vadu et They should verbally confess their sins, asher asu that they did. Ze vidui dvarim. This is a confession of words. The vidui ze mitzvat aser. And to confess those words is itself a positive commandment. So to encapsulate what Rambam does here, well, this will close and we'll get into the next section next week. He's basically saying, what is tshuva? Tshuva is the thing that you will do after you commit a sin. And the primary entryway into the tshuva is not thinking that, that you did something wrong, is not you know, a sense of regret. It is saying out loud the sin that you did, which is the hardest thing to do, right? I mean, think of how children in homes or in camps or schools struggle when they're, when, when, when they're caught with a hand in the cookie jar. They start defending themselves instantaneously. And, oh, adults as well, right? The, the first principle of chuba is being able to say, I stole, I swore, I hurt, I blasphemed God, I injured, I sinned. Not, oh, the reason was, oh, but the context is, the first principle of tshuva is for you to say to yourself and to God, I did something inexcusable. If you could start there, then really anything is possible. So we'll stop there. We'll pick up next week and we'll um, uh, go deeper. We're obviously not going to you know, complete Sefer Hilcho uh, Tshuva because it's, it's an enormous amount of material. But it's all available, by the way, on Safaria in English and in Hebrew. So if you wanted to peruse it between now and then or in general, um, have added Shabbat Shalom. I look forward to continuing with you next week. You have been listening to another in our series of podcasts from Temple Beth Am, a dynamic center for conservative Judaism in Los Angeles. If you enjoy these podcasts, we invite you to write a review on the Apple Podcast site or wherever you get your podcasts. For more information about Temple Beth Am Los Angeles, go to tbala.org.